From Nokia Bell Labs, this is Future Human, a series about the human potential of technology. What follows is the recent Shannon Luminary Lecture from internet pioneer Vint Cerf, who currently serves as Vice President and Chief Internet Evangelist at Google. The talk is entitled, The Future of the Internet of Things. And if you haven't already, please check out our prior episode, number 12, for some background and insight into this exciting talk. The next voice you hear will be that of Marcus Weldon, president of Bell Labs and CTO of Nokia. This is the third, I think, of these lectures this year. Stephen Fry was the end of last year. So I was thinking about the last three we've had. We had Stephen Fry waxing poetic about how mankind and technology have interacted and will interact in future. Then we had uh, Brian Collins talking about the future of design and how humans will interact in, in, in desirable things and what is desire in objects. And now we've got Vint Cerf uh, to talk about the future of the Internet of Things. I think what a triumvirate of talks uh, we have. So I'm going to say a little bit about Vint, mostly made up. Uh, <laughs> exactly. No, I'll tell you a little bit of the history of Vint uh, as I know it, and I know it because it's on Wikipedia, uh, and so uh, it's, it's definitely true. Uh, <laughs> he grew up in the 1800s. No, that's... that's <laughs> In the, in the, he, he actually did his undergraduate work in mathematics at Stanford uh, and then saw the light and, and moved to uh, UCLA. Uh, but he actually joined uh, Len Kleinrock. And, and those of you who know data networking, Len Kleinrock is a, a legend in the field. He joined Len Kleinrock's uh, packet data networking group uh, to do his PhD and, and came across a guy called Bob Kahn. And between, uh, between uh, Vinton and Bob, uh, they invented or worked out the fundamentals of a very famous protocol that some of you know, um, all of you use, called TCPIP, uh, which is the foundation of all HTTP and all web services, essentially. So, so that's the foundation of the internet. So he's considered one of the co-founders of the internet, and that's a pretty cool title. <laughs> Lord of the internet. Uh, so so that's, uh, that's his early history. And then, of course, uh, he... Uh, he moved into uh, uh, employment and he joined MCI. Remember MCI? Uh, he was not the reason MCI went the way it went. He actually uh, launched the first uh, commercial mail service, email we can blame on, uh, on Vint, uh, because he launched the first commercial mail service for MCI, then left MCI after a while and uh, founded the Internet Society, which actually uh, was thinking about the larger purpose of the Internet and, and many of the important issues were discussed there. He became... Uh, leading board member of ICANN, which is the domain name registry service uh, that actually assigns domain names uh, on the internet. So you can see how foundational uh, he has remained to the internet as a, uh, as a whole. Then uh, he moved to uh, Google, where he became, and this is the second coolest title he has, is uh, Internet Evangelist. I mean... What a job. Any, you could do anything with that title, right? So he's the internet evangelist at Google. Been, I think you've been there since 2005. So he's uh, quite an established Googler. But uh, what I will say is a couple of notable things. Most recently, he's been known for his work on the intergalactic internet. Yeah, the intergalactic internet. Uh, it's, it's a thing, at least in Vint's mind, and, uh, and working with NASA, the idea is how can you work in very difficult media that in, involve planetary motion and attenuated signals, et cetera. So he's done a bunch of work on that, which is 
cool. We thought we were cool because we're going to the moon next year. Uh, Vint's already been uh, throughout the galaxy, at least his mind has. So, and then last, so, uh, the, the most humorous part is he's noted for being very dapper. You all know the British were dapper, well-dressed. Well I would say he is. You're going to see that in a minute. He's particularly phenomenally dapper for a scientist. <laughs> and if I look at the back rows in here, <laughs> I think that will be confirmed. Uh, so anyway, uh, without any further ado, I do want to welcome Vint, who's going to talk about the future of the Internet of Things. Vincent. <laughs> Well, thank you all very much. Uh, I always get nervous when people clap before I've said anything. I figure I should just sit down because it won't get any better than that. Uh, for those of you who have not uh, had an opportunity to spend time uh, here at Nokia Bell Labs, I've just spent the morning talking to people, visiting, uh, having a look at some of the uh, research and the experiments that are going on. This place is alive and cracking in a way that I don't think it has been for quite a long time. And I think, Marcus, you get a lot of credit for that. Uh, so this place is full of ideas. It's full of challenging uh, the future, trying to figure out how to make things work uh, or, or work better than they do today. And so I've come away with a real sense of uh, mission and purpose uh, in this organization. Uh, I did want to mention two things um, about my title, uh, first of all. The actual title at Google is Chief Internet Evangelist. <laughs> and, <laughs> but that's not the title that I asked for. When, when uh, Larry and Eric and Sergey uh, invited me to join the company, uh, they said, what title do you want? And I thought about it for a while, and they said, how about Archduke? I thought, I thought that was a terrific title. And so they went away, but they came back and they said, you know, the previous Archduke was Ferdinand, and he was, just, he was assassinated in 1914, and it started World War I, so maybe that's a bad title to have. Why don't you be our chief internet evangelist? I said, okay, I can do that. Now, the three-piece suits. Um, I was at Stanford University working on the internet way back in the 1970s, and around 1976, the Advanced Research Projects Agency uh, said, why don't you come to Washington and run the, the whole program? And my wife, who was from Kansas, looks at me and says, Washington, D.C.? This is 1976. Three-piece suits. So she goes off to the Stanford Shopping Center and, and buys three three-piece suits, including a seersucker outfit, because she knows in the summertime Washington, D.C. is terrible, hot, and muggy. So I show up at ARPA, and uh, after a while, I'm asked to testify before some committee in the Congress. And so it happened to be during the summertime, and I was wearing my three-piece uh, seersucker suit. I show up, and I do my testimony, and I go back to work. And I don't hear anything, and then a couple of weeks later, the director of ARPA calls me into his office and says, I want to talk to you about your testimony. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, I've said something stupid. You know, I'm, it's the end of my government career. So he's got this letter in front of him. He says, well, I have a letter here from the chairman of the committee. Uh, he thanks you very much for your testimony. By the way, he's the best dressed guy from ARPA we've ever seen. <laughs> and I took that as positive feedback, and I've been wearing three-piece suits ever since. <laughs> now, all of you know that the title of this, not this title, but the, this is, it says, Shannon Luminary Lecture. Now, I am nervous as hell about this, because Shannon is an icon He's, he's a god in our universe uh, who brought 
uh, a deep idea about information uh, to all the rest of us. And I don't have anything close to a Shannon quality lecture to offer you. So I hope that you'll forgive me that. Uh, what I do want to do, though, is make you think about programmable devices and the universe that uh, we are about to enter. So let's have a look. Now this, uh, I'm just going to be quiet and let you read this for a minute. These are the sorts of things that go through my mind as we start entering into this future. This is a test to see whether everybody can read English. Okay, time's up. So I want to start out by asking you to imagine a universe full of devices that are programmable and have communications capability, and they are, in theory, there to help you. And so as I think about that, I think about the properties that I would like these devices to have and I would like the people who make those devices, some of whom may be right here at Nokia Bell Labs, to have this in mind when they're making these things. For sure, I want these things to be highly reliable. I don't want a 0.75 probability that the light will go on when I flip the switch. I want these things to work essentially 100% of the time. Uh, so that's very important because if it's unreliable, you're not going to want to use it, not for very long, if it just doesn't work all the time. Second, safety. I don't want things that are unsafe in my house, my car, in my office, in my manufacturing plant. And so safety should be a very high priority for the design and implementation of these kinds of devices. What about security? Why would I want something in my home or my office that's insecure, that might be vulnerable to hacking, uh, whose function might be interfered with at a crucial moment, or which might be perturbed in a way that uh, wasn't intended? For example, a webcam, which turns out to, uh, to be attackable, not, not simply so that somebody can use the webcam to look at what it's seeing, but how about the attacks against Dyne Corporation, which involved a botnet of 500,000 webcams that had been taken over by a botnet herder. Uh, it turned out that it was not a very big deal to take over these things because the, uh, if they had usernames and passwords, they were well known and, and fixed and documented in the, in the uh, user's manual. Uh, so people could just use that and take control over the device and aim its megabit per second video stream at any target on the internet. Or it didn't have any access control at all. You just, once you had the IP address, you could just take over and have it send its stream to one destination. So a half a million of these webcams were used to drive 550 gigabits of uh, bandwidth of video uh, to the Dyne Corporation target and, of course, knocked it over. So. Security is a huge issue here. Privacy is equally important. Uh, and I'll uh, come to some examples of things that you wouldn't normally ex think of as being an invasion of privacy, but which turn out to be because of the kinds of data that the device might be able to uh, capture. What about interoperability? 
there are going to be lots and lots of companies that make these devices. And the thing that you don't want is to have purchased them and brought them home or brought them to the office and discover that they don't, they're not, they're compat they're not compatible with each other. You can't make them interwork as an ensemble. And it, it would drive you crazy if you had to have different sets of controls and configuration and everything else for these different brands of devices. So interoperability is its own reward in some sense. The question is whether there's any incentive for the manufacturers to create devices that interwork with each other, as opposed to somehow saying, well, if you buy my devices, they all work together, so don't buy anybody else's because then it won't work uh, in an ensemble. And finally, here's an autonomy issue. Nobody wants to have devices that they're relying on that suddenly stops working because the internet connection's gone. It's like you know, being at home and having the house shut down just because the internet connection is gone. That's not acceptable. So things have to work even if the internet isn't there. They might not work uh, in the full uh, capability that these things might have. I mean, there might be significant data processing available uh, on the cloud somewhere, but you don't want the basic functionality to disappear just because uh, internet access isn't available. So those are some of the desirable properties that these devices should have. I'm sure that you can make up some more, and I encourage you to do that because the people who make these things are going to need feedback from the users about what makes them useful and what makes them not useful. You remember what Einstein said? Things should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. If you design IoT devices and you have a, an overly simple model of how they should work, uh, you will create uh, chaos. There are some people who think okay, there's a user, there's a mobile, there's an app on the mobile, there's the internet, and there's the device, done. Yeah, well, with that very simple model, you end up with an app that controls the mobile through the internet or through the local Wi-Fi or something like that. And that's all just fine for one device. What if there are two, three, four, five, six, seven, a hundred devices? Uh, suddenly, you don't want to be flipping through 80 different apps to figure out how to flush the toilet. So I mean, this is not, this scalability is a big issue here. And the simple-minded model of one device, one app, and so on is not going to be satisfactory over time. So we have to think about this as an ecosystem. I don't know how to overemphasize this. Because thinking in ecosystems terms, thinking in systems terms, thinking about system engineering, thinking about large collections of components that have to interwork, is the only reasonable way that we will design and build IoT systems that are usable by you and me. And so we cannot think of this device at a time. It has to be collections of these things to, uh, to interwork. Now, there's a very interesting uh, problem here, uh, and that is discovering uh, that there is a new device in the ecosystem. And the question is, exactly how should we do that? If I walk into a stranger's house, or I walk into someone else's house, uh, and I'm carrying some devices that are already part of my ecosystem, are, should they be detectable by my friend's home? Uh, should my friend's home automatically try to incorporate my device into their ecosystem? Should it figure out that it's foreign and shouldn't be connected at all? Should it ask? 
Should my device ask, do you want to be coupled into this? Does my friend want my device to be coupled into his ecosystem or not? You can't just think about you walked into your home with your device and it's detected that it's present and it becomes part of the ecosystem. You actually have to think through these other corner cases and keep in mind, of course, as people come in and out of your home, um, I'll use the residential model here for convenience, but the same arguments apply to uh, engineering uh, industrial settings and things like that. But you have to take into account all these various kinds of cases in order to design the ecosystem to behave in a way that makes sense, that is predictable and expected. So uh, this is the, we, we want the system to behave in a rational way. And that means not accidentally uh, incorporating things into the local system unless, in fact, that's intended and, and is considered to be useful. Uh, there's another big issue here, and that is that these devices are full of software. At least that's the word I'll use right now. Other people might use a different descriptor for what they're full on. But uh, in this particular case, uh, we know that for the last 80 years or so when we, that we have been programming computers, that we have failed miserably to figure out how to avoid bugs, despite the fact that we've had you know, eight decades to try to learn how to write programs that don't have bugs. Well, the implication of bugs is multiple. Uh, multiple. First of all, a bug can cause a serious problem to happen, or it can simply cause the device not to work the way it was expected to work. Uh, on the other hand, if we are careful about this, we want to fix the bugs. That's, that's a responsible thing to do. So now the question is, how do I get new software into the device? Well, I suppose I could use the internet to transfer the information to the device, have the device upload the information and install it. But now there's an interesting question. What happened to the software on its way from the source to the destination, to the device? Did somebody change it on the way? How can I tell? Can I use digital signatures as a way of validating the integrity? Where did it come from? Even if I can validate the integrity of the software, did it come from the place that it should have come from? Does the device know where it should accept updates from? And can it uh, reject that if, in fact, it thinks that that's coming from the wrong place? So figuring out whether the update is legitimate is a very important uh, property that one needs to have in these devices. Uh, then there's uh, another big problem that happens. Let's uh, suppose that you update the software and suddenly things stop working properly. I'm sure you've never had that experience with updates of operating systems. Suddenly you can't configure any of the, of the printers in your house because something went wrong. And of course you're fulminating at this point. And the question is, can you get back to the previous condition? And often the answer is no. Uh, or if, if, if you try, maybe you may need some expert help to do that. So I mean, these, this sort of updates that happen automatically that leave you in a non-functional uh, situation are you know, aggravating to say the least. So figuring out how to roll back, if necessary, uh, is very important. Uh, there's also a great deal of uh, value in understanding what these devices are actually doing. And so instrumentation turns out to be very important. For the same reasons that you know, we instrument our bodies to figure out whether we're, our machine, our human machine, is functioning properly, keeping track of the uh, health of some of these devices is equally important. So we need to design instrumentation into the devices so that we can tell whether they are functioning properly or not. 
and that their interactions with other devices are working as expected. Uh, the data may need to be uh, provided or shared with the manufacturer of the device. Uh, it might need to be shared with someone who you hired to kind of maintain uh, the collection of devices that are part of your residential setting. Um, then, of course, you want to make sure that that information only gets into the proper hands. And so now, otherwise, it could be potentially abused, and I'm sure we'll, we'll come up with a few examples of why that's a big issue. Uh, we also have the problem that some of these devices may turn out to be fairly minimal. For example, a light bulb. And it isn't clear just how much computing you can do with a, a light bulb. So uh, in order to protect the device from being abused, whether it's a webcam or a light bulb or a, a heating controller or something, if you can't make the device um, protect itself, then you may need to have an architecture that includes something in the house, we'll call it a hub uh, or a firewall, that will do that job for it, that will stand between the collection of devices that you have that you're relying on and external uh, attempts to invade modify, uh, interfere with, and so on. Uh, so again, these are all architectural thinking, uh, these thoughts that uh, I think are, should inform the design of the Internet of Things. So let's see where we go from here. Here are some more examples. Um, I mentioned uh, scaling as a, an issue. And this is, this is really quite a serious problem. Uh, if you have only one device, you can imagine you turn on an app. Uh, maybe there's a Wi-Fi connection to the device or Bluetooth or something else, and the app sort of helps you get the device configured properly. But I want you to imagine that you have 100 devices in your house, and that is not an unlikely situation. If you have smart light bulbs and uh, entertainment systems and security systems and heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems and smart appliances and so on, Adding up to 100 is not going to be very difficult. The last thing in the world you want to do is to spend uh, the afternoon or, for all I know, a week typing IPv6 addresses into some application program to get all of your devices configured. But it gets worse. Imagine for a moment that you have 100 devices and you decide to move to a new house, and so you bring a bunch of these devices with you, and there's another 100 in the house that you're moving into, and now you have the problem of trying to get all of them uh, to be configured in a way that's compatible and consistent uh, and everything else. So we need to have um, essentially effort, effortless configuration. Or there may be a whole new type of job available now that the person who comes and actually helps you configure your house and maintain it. Those jobs already exist, I know, because I have a custom-made entertainment system. The software... Uh, is available. I actually have the source code available. I don't have time to fix it when it breaks, so I have to have a guy drive in from 100 miles away every time something goes wrong with my entertainment system, which is actually a good reason not to do too much customized stuff. But the important thing is that you can imagine people having jobs to maintain the operation of your smart home before it becomes a smart-ass home. <laughs> um, the, the, the problem of configuration uh, and maintenance operation and the like gets worse in an industrial setting where you might have tens of thousands of these devices. You think of them ranging from robots to sensors and other kinds of things in a manufacturing environment, for example. So there's a huge amount of uh, effort that I think needs to be applied to scaling up 
of this ensemble. Now, here's another problem in a residential setting, which I find absolutely fascinating. Uh, the devices are supposed to respond to your uh, control. Uh, and yet, it's probably true that there are some things that, that the parents don't want the kids to be able to do, like unlock the house inappropriately. Uh, so what about guests? You know, the guests show up, and you want them to be able to use the house properly, uh, you know, to turn the lights on or flush the toilet or whatever else it is. But you don't necessarily want to give them control over everything in the house. And when they leave, you want to take that control away, especially if you don't want them to do something remotely that uh, it might affect the safety and security of, of your house. So think about the devices now having to distinguish among the various potential users that wander in. Of course, ironically, even that the parents don't want the kids to do certain things in this world, the kids probably know better than the parents do about how to get around any kind of uh, limitations. But the devices are going to have to make this distinction. And some people, of course, including uh, my uh, colleagues at Google, are working on voice recognition and things like that. But I have to say that I don't think that's a, a completely reliable way of distinguishing among people. So somehow or other, we have to figure out how to make that distinction reliably so that we offer control only of the right type to the appropriate people. Let me take emergency responders as an example of a different kind of access control. Um, normally, you wouldn't want the fire department to have access to the webcams in your house. Certainly not in the normal course of events. But what if there is a fire? Your house is on fire. The fire department is on its way. At that point, you might want them to have access to the webcams because there might be people unconscious in various rooms in the house, or they want to know where is the fire burning you know, most severely. So there's this episodic access that you would want to offer somehow. Uh, but you don't, after the fire is out, you don't want the fire department to therefore have access to all of your equipment forever. Just because there was a fire, they had access. So you have to have this episodic granting and, re and revocation of access to some of these devices. So we have to figure out the mechanics of doing that. How do they identify themselves as, as valid uh, controllers or accessors of these systems? Um, so th this episodic thing is important. So you have to figure out which authorities get granted by the uh, collection of devices, how are they granted, uh, and for how long, and how do you rescind them? I mean, I'm worried about how long does it take to introduce a guest to the house? And if you think for just a minute about having configured everything, what if you have multiple lights? Let's see how many lights there are in this auditorium. Uh, and I only, if I only wanted to turn on one or two of them, how do I refer to the lights that I want to turn off and on? I mean, do I have to give them names like George and Eddie and Frank? And, and then how do I teach the guests, you know, that this is Frank over here and this is Eddie over there. You guys got a list, uh, you know, or, or, or we download an app that has all the light bulb names in it. We I don't know how we're going to do this. I mean, the ideal thing, of course, would be to just point at the thing. Or maybe you have a voice interaction, and then you have a big debate about turn on the lights. Which light do you want me to turn on? Well, turn on the one in the upper left-hand corner above the lamp. You, know, you can see, that as attractive as all this sounds when you see you know, science fiction things and ads and everything else, the reality may turn out to be fairly complicated. And figuring out how to do this in a smooth way that will be intuitive I think is a big challenge. Uh, so uh, this, this general question of, is there a new user in the universe? Uh, how do I add them? How do I get rid of them uh, in, a, uh, in a convenient and efficient way? 
Uh, it gets worse when you transfer a collection of devices to a new owner, or even just one. Uh, is there a factory reset button that you hand to them? If somebody moves into your house and you've got it all set up, it's not clear whether the party moving into the house actually wants to start from zero. So is there a way of handing over control? And you know, what if you did name the lights Frank and Eddie and George? You know, do they have to know how to, you know, do they get to rename them or something? So this is a, we haven't experienced this stuff yet because the number of devices in our residential settings is still pretty small. But as time goes on, assuming they have reliability, security, and all those other things, uh, there's going to be more and more of them, of them, and there will be problems like this that we have to think ahead of time how to do these transfers in a smooth and convenient way. So I want to uh, come back to security for just a second. Uh, many of you know that uh, one of the most popular operating systems that Google uh, has uh, developed and released openly is called Android. But uh, and we're using that operating system in a lot of different products, including some of the ones that fall into this IoT category. Uh, because I thought security was so important, I tried to get the marketing people to name, rename Android Paranoid. Um, because I thought that's what it should be. It should be paranoid about security, but they didn't think it was a good idea, so we didn't. But in fact, the operating systems really need to be suspicious about somebody coming and knocking on the door of an IoT device. Hello, I'd like to take control of the device. Who are you? Why do you think you have the authority to do that? Which is why I mentioned the firewalls and the filtering hubs and things like that for the devices that are otherwise largely defenseless. Uh, now, here's a place where uh, there is work going on here at uh, Nokia Bell Labs on how to do essentially, um, let's say, uh, almost touch-free uh, commissioning of these devices, integration into a system. There's a lot of effort going into that. We had a good discussion this morning about what that might look like. I happen to be a big fan of what's called strong authentication. What I would like very much, frankly, is that when I'm introducing a device into the system. I would like the device to have the ability to strongly authenticate any party that is attempting to get control over it, which means some form of public key crypto, uh, you know, two-factor authentication or other things that allow the device to resist any access other than a party that the device has been con uh, configured to accept as a, uh, as a legitimate uh, a controller or an, a legitimate party to whom information could be sent. Uh, so the other side of the coin, of course, is that we want the device to not allow itself to be configured into the wrong system. That when you start thinking about density in apartment buildings, for example, with people bringing all these devices uh, into their uh, apartments, uh, if these are radio-based devices, many of which almost certainly will be, how do you avoid accidentally configuring somebody else's stuff into your network or vice versa? I mean, the thing I worry about is the 15-year-old next door who gets control over my entertainment system while I'm in configuration mode because he's sitting here monitoring what's going on in the neighborhood. That's an entirely believable scenario. So we need to make sure we can defend against that. That means that the devices have to be smart enough to resist in inappropriate access and the configuration system needs to be smart enough to know that device does not belong in my system to avoid accidentally configuring uh, your neighbor's equipment. This is, you know, the scenario that I worry about is, is the analogy where you know, there are 
uh, two people in bed with an electric blanket that has two controls, and they've got the controls swapped. And so, you know, one person is turning the heat up and the other one's turning the heat down, and for some reason this isn't working right. That's the sort of thing I worry about when you misconfigure things or you configure somebody else's devices into your own system. So I am con concerned about having this strong authentication tool available. I also am worried about confidentiality. Um, so let me give you an example. Um, I have in my home uh, sensors in every room in the house, and they are sensing the temperature, the humidity, and the light levels in each room in the house, and every five minutes they package up that information and send it through a little mesh radio network to a receiver uh, which stores that data in a, a controller down in the basement. I know, only a geek would do that, right? But, but in fact, it, at the end of the year, I have really good information on how well the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning system has worked. So I have engineering data that will help me adjust the system. Also, I have a wine cellar and I'm very concerned about the temperature and the humidity in the wine cellar. So that one's specially instrumented, so if the temperature goes above uh, 52 degrees Fahrenheit, I get an SMS on my mobile saying, your wine is warming up, you know. Ah. Um, so, uh, in fact, at one point I figured out that, uh, that I could actually tell if somebody has gone into the wine cellar uh, without my permission, because I could see that the lights went off and on. And uh, so I worry that, um, you know, that somebody may have taken some wine out of the cellar without my permission. So I came to the conclusion that I needed to uh, put RFID, uh, RFID chips on each bottle. <laughs> and, and, and that way, you know, I could, I could do an instantaneous inventory to make sure that no, no bottles have left the cellar without my permission. And, and I was proudly describing my design to one of my engineering friends, and he said, you know, you have a bug in your design. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, somebody could go in and drink the wine and leave the bottle. <laughs> so now I have to put sensors in the cork. <laughs> and as long as you're doing that, you might as well measure, you know, the various esters uh, in, the, in the wine and figure out whether it's ready to drink. So uh, you interrogate the cork before you open the bottle. And if that's the wine that got up to 80 degrees because of some you know, anomaly, that's the one you give somebody that doesn't know the difference. <laughs> okay, so, so you can see why I'd be concerned about things. Let me give you, let's go back to the temperature thing. Imagine for just a moment that someone was able to get access to temperature readings in every room in the house for six months you might be able to infer from that how many people live in the house, when do they come and go, what are their, their diurnal patterns, are they home or not. So if you were planning to rob the house, temperature information might actually turn out to be quite useful. That's why you need cryptography in order to protect the data that might be flowing around uh, through and, uh, and with these various devices in order to keep information confidential. And so you don't normally think about stuff like that uh, unless you have a particularly paranoid mind. And I've become increasingly paranoid as I have explored these various scenarios with what, these wonderful devices. Uh, another thing which uh, one re needs is to be able to get back to zero again. I mean, if everything is, has become unworkable, things are not behaving properly and everything else, you have to have a way of sort of resetting to get back to a known state, that's important. It could be painful, it could require a complete reconfiguration, but you need to be able to get out of a situation where the devices are no longer functioning the way they should be. So there needs to be some recovery capability. And I mentioned earlier instrumentation, I'm a big believer in this continuous monitoring 
for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the ability to establish a kind of baseline of how these devices should be behaving. You know, what kinds of temperatures should they be sensing? What other kinds of things should they be detecting? What's important about that, of course, is that once you have a baseline, you can start asking questions like, have I drifted away from the baseline in any in a way that uh, should raise an alarm, like the temperature is above a certain amount, therefore I need to do something about the wine cooling system. So this notion also, by the way, applies to uh, you know, instrumentation for health, which is something uh, I learned about while I was here this morning. There are a number of devices that Nokia Bell Labs is developing in order to do this sort of continuous monitoring, in order to look more deeply uh, into uh, our bodies, including our metabolic uh, function, which is sort of like examining the exhaust of a car to figure out whether it's functioning properly. We need to be able to do the same thing uh, with our uh, bodies and metabolic output. And so this continuous monitoring is a super valuable way of establishing a baseline for the ensemble of devices that are in a particular setting. And again, of course, diagnostic tools to take advantage of all that data. Well, people often ask about artificial intelligence and machine learning in the context of the Internet of Things. And I, I've come to the conclusion that it is not adequate to say, well, I have a mobile app and I can control everything that way. Uh, for one thing, your mobile might not be working. It might be out of power. Uh, another possibility is that you don't want to uh, spend time trying to find the app to do something. You just want to go over, maybe touch a display that says, turn that light on. You know, there's no ambiguity about that. Or you want the convenience of being able to say, turn the light on. That might you know, result in a, in a debate about which one. But, but the idea of having these different modalities to communicate with the IoT uh, ensemble, I think, is very important. I want to actually be able to do things by any of the modalities that I would normally use to communicate with people. So that includes email and texting and so on. I think my IoT ensemble should be able to interact with me with any of those modalities, you know, voice, email, text, and so on. Uh, one thing that I think is very important is that when you're looking for precision, it, it could be that the voice interface is exactly not the thing that you want because you may be misunderstood. I don't know whether you've had this experience I have with some of these voice recognition systems where it doesn't actually recognize what you, what you said, and it says, uh, I don't understand, would you say that again? And after about the third or fourth time, you're ready to throw the mobile against the wall or stomp on your computer or do something and throw the phone away. So reliability uh, is a big issue, and you may want to choose an alternative modality in order to achieve uh, more precision. Uh, the other thing is, is figuring out what functionality the collection of devices uh, uh, exhibit and having a way of saying that functionality. This may turn out to be important. If we have multiple manufacturers of devices, it would be really wonderful if we had a common ontology that, described, that allowed us to describe what functions those devices are capable of doing. And so... It, this will allow us, if we're uh, willing to cooperate, to take devices from multiple manufacturers and describe what they can do in a common way so that when we're trying to interact with them, we have a common way of asking them to do what they're capable of doing. Um, one of the interesting questions is whether you can formulate a model of the collection of devices that you have put into your home, just to use the residential uh, example, and then reason about it so that, for example, uh, if you have an entertainment system, you might very well want to be able to say, show this movie 
or run, you know, play this movie now and have the system figure out, oh, that means I should drop the lights and I should do some other things, close the door to keep from disturbing everybody else. So you want to have the ability to model the collection of things you have and to have an ability for the software to reason about that collection in order to associate actions, uh, uh, multiple actions, to do things. Uh, I think there's also a big issue here, a more general one, it's not just to do with uh, Internet of Things, and that's this question of um, understanding what machine learning can and can't do. Uh, at Google, as you may know, we have spent quite a bit of time and effort elaborating on machine lear learning. Uh, we've gone from uh, fairly simple algorithms running in ordinary CPUs to graphical processing units which run faster, now to specialized devices like the tensor processing units that run at extremely high speed, do large numbers of uh, fairly simple computations in order to implement these machine learning multi-layer network models. One of the big issues that arise, arises is exactly how did this machine learning model come to its conclusion? How do we know whether it's biased or not? Uh, how do we even know whether it's correct in any you know, particular sense? Uh, and when something goes wrong, how do we explain to somebody how the machine learning model you know, got to its conclusion? Uh, we are still some ways away from exactly understanding how these various machine learning systems actually work. Some of you who are familiar with this space will know that uh, you can train a machine learning network to uh, distinguish dogs and cats, for example. Um, but it turns out that it, after a successful training by showing it different pictures and, and asking it, is this a dog or a cat, just to use an example. And eventually the feedback loop gets it to identify dogs very reliably and distinguish them from cats. We discovered that very small changes in the actual image input to the top of this machine learning network can cause the system not to see a dog, but a kangaroo. And the, the reason that this happens is that there may be places in the neural network where a few pixels in the image actually have a very powerful effect on the decision-making, the weights that are associated with the neural network at that point in this neural network structure. And so we're still exploring exactly how those sorts of things happen. There's a, there's a whole process of adversarial image production where you have trained the system to recognize a variety of images, and then you start tweaking the images to fool the system into thinking it's seeing something else, and that feedback loop is to try to build up resistance to some of that misunderstanding. The thing that's scary is that sometimes you don't anticipate because you don't really know uh, which small pixel changes would, uh, would lead to these gigantic mistakes. It's like a chaotic system where tiny changes in the input cause dramatic and unpredictable outputs. And so at this stage of the game, I don't think we have a deep enough understanding of how the system could go awry, and we should be worried about that. Um, a thing that uh, I found really interesting about machine learning, though, is that for certain narrow kinds of tasks, it's spectacularly successful. Some of you will know about the AlphaGo program from Google's DeepMind, which learned, was trained how to play Go over a period of weeks or months, and then proceeded to win most of its games against international Go players, Grandmaster Go players. Uh, the, uh, the thing which I found most interesting, however, is that a new version of the AlphaGo system called AlphaZero uh, learned how to play Go 
uh, from, from zero with no previous training at all, except knowing what the rules of Go were, uh, in a few days, it was able to beat international grandmasters. Uh, a similar AlphaZero program was trained to play chess. And in about four hours, it learned how to play chess well enough to beat, uh, as far as we know, all of the computer-based chess playing programs, three or four hours. I'm not sure, I don't know whether they've tested against human grandmasters, but in three or four hours to learn how to play chess that well against other computer-based chess programs is pretty astonishing. And so these machine learning algorithms look and sound extremely dramatic. What's very important is not to mistake this specialized machine learning from general artificial intelligence, which is what our human brains do. We're not the same as those machine learning tools. We formulate models of the real world based on small amounts of experience, and we use the models to interact with the real world. We, in, we reason about the model. We take actions based on the model. And I want to uh, maybe overemphasize this for you because I'm now fully convinced that most of our interactions with the real world are not based on our immediate sensory input as much as they are based on the models that we have of what the real world is like. And my small example of this is at uh, 3 o'clock in the morning, way back in the uh, 1970s when I was still working on the early uh, Internet, I remember um, it was 3 in the morning because I was working with my colleagues at University College London, which was many hours away. I was at Stanford. They were in London. It was... Uh, eight hours time difference. Um, and so I would go in early in the morning so I would get to them in their morning or mid-afternoon. So it's 3 a.m., I'm driving on Campus Drive, and I drive through a stop sign that was not there the day before. And I didn't notice it until I got through the stop sign and got about 100 yards down the road, and then I stopped thinking, oh my God, I just went through the stop sign. Well, uh, you, you can see what must have been happening. My model was there's no stop sign, so I keep going. I'm getting input as I'm driving, and the stop sign pops up, and it takes a little while for my brain to figure out that the model that I had isn't the same as what the real world is telling me. So I'm convinced that there is a very interesting process going on in the human brain where we are both building models and functioning based on those models and also taking an input to find out whether our models are still predicting what the real world is like. And I'm, you know, if that uh, theory holds any weight, it might tell us something about literally the anatomical structure of our brains. But I want to give you a concrete and uh, useful example of how machine learning has been used at Google, not just to play chess and go. Uh, we have big data centers. Uh, we have a lot of them. And uh, they cost quite a bit of uh, money to run. And in particular, we use up a lot of electrical power, not just to run the computers, but to cool them off because they generate a lot of heat. Well, historically, we would take a whole bunch of parameter readings of how, uh, how well we were doing cooling the system, uh, you know, temperature ranges that we'd been able to maintain, the amount of power that we consumed just running the pumps and setting the valves to do the cooling. It was all done manually. And so once a week, somebody would go in and look at the data and adjust some of the parameters of the program that was doing this, this uh, cooling system. So somebody got the bright idea that we should just train a machine learning network and give it as feedback uh, whether or not it was reducing the uh, power required to run the pumping and valve system. That was the only feedback metric, was to reduce the power required to maintain suitable temperature ranges. 
And so uh, within a few, uh, I don't know how long they trained it. It could have been a few weeks. But in any case, it saved 40% of the power required to cool the system after we introduced the machine learning control system, which is now operating in real time. So of course, we want to implement that for all of the data centers because that's saved money. Uh, I've already hinted, I'm going to, I want to make sure we have time for Q&A here. So um, I'm, I'm concerned about corner case failures. These are special complicated situations that might not normally happen, but if you don't think your way through them, Murphy's Law guarantees they will happen as soon as you release the device into public. So I want people who design these systems to really think their way through the corner cases. But the final thing I want to say about AI and machine learning is that I'm not worried and scared about robots are taking over or AI is taking over the world. I'm concerned about software that has been given autonomy to make decisions without my intervention. That's what scares me, because if that software has bugs and makes mistakes, I can't see ahead of time that a mistake is going to be made. It's going to happen, and only then will I discover it's a problem. So we should be really careful about handing over control to pieces of software whose functionality we may still be a little concerned about. Well, that brings me to an ethical concern. And out of an interest in time here, I don't think I'll go too deeply into this, but I think that people who write software have gotten away with murder for the last 80 years or so because they say, well, it's just a bug. But when we're relying on these devices to do things for us, just a bug may be more than just a bug. It may, and you all read about this recent uh, fatality with the uh, Uber self-driving car. I don't know any of the details, and I don't know whether the software is to blame or not. But, but it's an example of the sort of thing that we should be worried about. And so I tell my programmers to feel great responsibility on their shoulders for writing software with great care to do everything they can to avoid bugs and mistakes and to be damn sure that if they, we do find a problem that we have a way to fix it. Uh, so uh, again, this is uh, one of the things that you want to be able to do is every time you release a new software package, you want to be able to make sure it still works with all, you know, it still does all the things it's supposed to do plus the new thing. With the self-driving cars at Google, we actually have the ability to do this. This is actually Waymo now, our alphabet company. Uh, because the car has sensors and it takes in the world, the sensor information is transduced into digital content. It's possible for us to simulate the real world, delivering the same information in the same way to, those, uh, to the software of the self-driving car. So in addition to driving 4 million miles on real roads, we've driven 2.5 or 3 billion miles in simulated space, which the car can't dis distinguish. It thinks the simulated space is real. So we can create circumstances uh, that, that allow us to determine whether the car will react correctly to all kinds of emergency situations and the like, which we can make up. And since we can store them and play them back again, we can run that software over and over again, uh, or the simulations over and over again, in order to make sure a new release of software doesn't break something that uh, was working before. So I think that's a very important uh, capability that we should think about when we're designing IOTs. Uh, I think that it's, it's essential that if we're designing systems that people are going to rely on, that we should be thinking about resisting external attacks, interfering with its operation or altering its operation. 
Uh, protection of privacy, again, should be obvious uh, as an ethical issue in addition to a technical one. Uh, and the ease of use question, if you didn't get the impression that I'm worried about that, I'll repeat, I am very worried about how easy it is to use these devices, especially when it's big collections of them that are interacting with each other and with us. And I do wonder about companies that go out of business. Some of these devices that you buy may be in the house, for example, for 20 or 30 years, especially if it's heating, ventilation, air conditioning, security systems and the like. Some company may go out of business that made that device or made the software for it. So I'm even thinking that as an ethical measure, that the source code ought to be escrowed somewhere so that under certain conditions it could be made available in order to make sure those devices still can get proper attention uh, in the event that bugs are found. So standards turn out to be really important as well. And here it should be just obvious to you that standardization is a substitute for a bunch of bilateral negotiations to get things to interwork. And so the internet is a very good example of that. Once everybody adopted TCP IP, we were assured with high probability that devices that plugged into the internet could talk to each other across the net because they had observed the same standards. Same argument can be made for IoT as well. So all of these notions of standardization, far from stifling creativity, actually enable it because by creating interoperability, you now create a new platform atop of which many new applications can be designed and built, including gathering of data, analysis of data, feedback, and things like that. And of course, there is an opportunity to improve security if there is a common way of achieving and using cryptography and strong authentication to configure these devices and allow them to resist uh, inappropriate access. So this is the last slide, by the way. This is sort of the bottom line, uh, after which I'm happy to try to answer some questions. We are, whether we like it or not, there's going to be billions of these devices out there. Uh, if you consider a smartphone to be one of them, then there already are billions of those devices already in our hands. Uh, and some of them are not going to get uh, adequate support after they've been sold and installed. And I consider that to be an ethical failure. But there are people who will simply build the device, grab a piece of software from GitHub, throw it in, sell the device, and not pay any attention after that. And I think that we are going to end up with regulatory issues associated with that kind of behavior. Uh, certainly, some of these things won't meet all the kinds of desirable properties we talked about before. The question is, how do you know? Will somebody tell us? Will somebody evaluate the devices? Is there an underwriter's lab for IoT that, uh, that should be uh, implemented? And can we trust it? Uh, we need something because you and I are not going to sit down and try to look through the source code, even if we could get our hands on it. So there are going to be all kinds of issues like that that will inform regulation industry norms, for instance. And again, programmers who should feel this responsibility for uh, quality of their work. Uh, I already mentioned the possibility of new jobs arising from this. So everybody that runs around saying all the jobs are going away, I guarantee you when you start putting this kind of technology in place, lots of new jobs will come along as a result. However, the people whose jobs may have gone away may need retraining in order to do the new jobs. And that's important to keep in mind. Uh, I think that one of two things is going to happen. Either we're going to have this utopian, wonderful thing where all these devices just work for us and they work the way they're supposed to and life will be lovely, or it's just going to be some kind of nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, and I frankly think we'll experience both ends of that spectrum uh, as these devices get out into use. 
Last point I want to make is that making this world of IoT work well for all of us is a shared responsibility. There are regulatory questions. There are the questions of the people who build the devices and the software and deploy them. There are the users, you and me, uh, who actually have to be thoughtful about the potential vulnerabilities and uh, frailties of these devices. We should not put them into situations where they fail uh, to perform because we're expecting them to do things that they can't do. And so we all wind up having a certain amount of responsibility for making this world work better. So I'll stop there and thank you for your time and I'm happy to try to do some uh, questions if you, if you like. Thanks very much. So I've never been so depressed uh, by, by, by a talk. No, I, I, so tell me the optimistic way this, this pans out. I can imagine that, uh, I can't imagine that the device players are, are that well motivated to work with each other, you know, directly, device to device, but, but then the role of a network comes in because that is a unifying thing because of mobility functions. The only reason those have to work together is because I have to move from one to another. So standards play a role. Is therefore part of the answer that devices will be made to behave and enter work because of their mobility need, not their isolated silo island need? Do you think that's true? If so, does that mean the service providers have a role in this space? And, and since they're generally well-behaved actors, does that lead to, to that being part of the answer? So that's a very interesting question because those of us who uh, kind of grew up with this end-to-end -end model had the view that the intermediating, intervening networks were just a transparent pipe and you, know, and, and you just carry the bits, thank you very much. Uh, it does raise an interesting question whether it is at the level of the network, the sort of the transport, the packet switching and so on, that you want uh, the network provider to intervene or whether the intervention should take place at a higher layer of protocol. And I'm, I have mixed feelings about this. Um, I am very much enamored of the end-to-end -end notion. Uh, what's the endpoint, of course, is part of the debate. Uh, the, the use of intermediary devices makes a lot of sense, like the firewall or the, sure. or the control hub or something. And so the actual IoT devices might not be directly interacting with each other. So what you're suggesting is that the network provider, um, depending on how we define network, sure. uh, might have a role to play as an intermediary. So, for example, in security, I could easily imagine that the network would normally isolate a, a collection of devices at the edge of the net. Mm -hmm. And, and somehow be in, in, uh, involved in inhibiting uh, any interaction except by uh, parties that are authorized. So then the question is, how does that authorization happen? What is the role of the network provider, if any, in, in that process? How do you learn that you're supposed to block this traffic and allow this other traffic in? I still have this great desire that the edge device um, is able to protect itself by refusing communication to something that it cannot authenticate, even, even if the network allows it in. I think I agree with your model. I would just say the edge device could be a hub, and you would yes, still be yes, happy yes, in your could. model, and then I can yes. really dumb $1 devices, $0.01 cent devices, and that hub is, is then the proxy for Right, them. and then the question is, where does the hub come from? Is, yeah. it, is it customer premise equipment that provided by the network? Is it provided by a proprietary uh, third party? Uh, and I think actually all of those answers will probably be true. 
And then the hub is the thing that has to learn how to authenticate and manage interaction from... But from keep in mind that, uh, that even when you introduce a hub, the ability for these devices, especially the portable ones, to move from place to place, sure. either, either because you, know, you moved your house or you're simply moving in and out of residences as guests and so on, that, um, that there are going to be more interactions uh, between the hub and devices that show up I mean, it's, this is a little bit like the situation we have today in the internet, where the standardization essentially do allow every edge device that has an IP address to theoretically interact with another device that has an IP address. The result is that billions of experiments are done every single day when two devices that never talked to each other before suddenly exchange traffic. And of course, they're configured differently and they have different software and everything else. It's no surprise that every once in a while, uh, the exchange results in unexpected results. So I think our, uh, our challenge is to figure out how to reduce the level of unexpected result uh, so that things work more or less predictably. So the other point I really liked is the idea the only hope is baselining things uh, and then looking for the delta from a baseline. Yes, like what devices do I normally discover in my uh, Right, vicinity? and then any change from that is a negative. But, but now, it, you know, let's turn this around for a moment and imagine you're uh, an IoT device. Sure, for you. Now, you've been yeah. called a lot of things before, but never <laughs> that. But anyway, so, so let me introduce Marcus, the, the, IoT the walking device. IoT device. And you can imagine that you will encounter, you, as a device, you will encounter a whole bunch of different environments as you wander around. And the question is, what do those environments make of you? Do they try to configure you into the system or not? How do they know that they should reject you? Mm -hmm. How do they know that you should, they should accept you? Who tells them that? Where is their authority? So you're going to experience all these different places as you move around. And of course, the places that these devices go to are going to experience devices that you should or should not be known and uh, responded to and configured into the system. So you know, if I, I hope I've convinced everybody that this is theorem number 206 which reads, everything is more complicated. <laughs> well, so, so, but you're optimistic nonetheless. Uh, I, well, I'm, I'm we an engineer, and I have to be optimistic because, because otherwise those you know, never I'd probably leave. jump off of a cliff. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think that if we understand the, uh, the problems yep. deeply enough that, you know, that we can at least try to solve them, but, but you have to recognize that there's a problem before you can figure out how to solve it. So last question for me. When you were working with TCPIP and the ARPANET, did you frame the problems at this level of difficulty, complexity, or are we entering a new era of vulnerability, listing all the things you did, that make this order of magnitude a more difficult problem than the problems you were framing then? Well, we actually, um, fortunately, uh, separated a lot of the vulnerability question from just getting it to work at yeah, all. Yeah. Um, of course, that has led us to a situation where there are places where things are vulnerable and need to be uh, changed to fix that. Uh, when, I, when I was doing the early work, uh, there was a, um, a need in the Defense Department to fully secure this system. And so I worked very closely with NSA to develop packet cryptography, which turned out to be a non-trivial thing because you have to be able to decrypt the packets out of order because they don't necessarily stay in order. And that was different from streaming uh, crypto. And second, of course, some of the devices were classified, and the result was that I couldn't tell some of my colleagues who didn't have clearances exactly how it was that we had configured the system to work. So I was kind of schizophrenic for a while. Now, of course, we have public key crypto available, and that's very helpful. Uh, 
until, of course, we get to certain quantum computing algorithms like Shor's algorithm, which will break the crypto that's based which on... Which we helped by inventing that, of course, yeah. just to make uh, things hard. Sorry? The, Shor's algorithm was actually... Shor was a Bell Labs. Oh, really? Yeah, so it was, it's your yeah, fault. Yeah, the office next okay, was so, inadequate. Well, thank you all very much for messing <laughs> up the crypto. I really appreciate that. Fortunately, there's another branch of mathematics that may help us. It's lattice uh, uh, algebra. And uh, those, there are problems associated with that which can be used to create a cryptographic system that is not broken by Shor's algorithm. Of course, for all we know, somebody will come up with another algorithm on a quantum computer that can break the lattice systems. I don't know. So I think the short answer was uh, it's more complicated now, but it was pretty complicated back then. So I'll uh, open up to the audience, though. So, any questions for... Yes, there, there are roving microphones. There are roving microphones. There and they are, and there is a hand up already over there. Can you hear me? Yeah, you mentioned the need for interoperability several times. Yet every company, you or Google included, works like crazy to establish their own standard. Do you, need, do you see the need for regulatory to step in and provide adult supervision? Okay, I'm not getting all of yeah, what you I'll, asked. Uh, basically, uh, and I, I think I alluded to it, the current environment we're in is less uh, egalitarian than the yeah. Internet age. Oh, okay, so the, so, it was so a regulatory question. It's the silos of even maybe uh, Google and Facebook and Samsung and others making these device ecosystems. So how do you get those, how do you motivate the players to work together to create it's, something that isn't... Uh, it's, not, it's not always easy to get people to look more broadly than at their own product lines and capturing customers inside of those product lines. It's like the uh, information uh, silos, the garden, uh, closed gardens or walled gardens. Um, I think that over time, uh, there is pressure from the consumer side, whether it's you know, businesses or individuals, to show interoperability because they don't want to have to learn different ways of managing and controlling everything just because they bought it from a different party. And so I remember this happened in networking. <clears throat> Some of you will remember that uh, there were uh, proprietary networks provided. IBM had SNA, Digital had DECnet, um, HP had DS, and they didn't interwork, but they could uh, link uh, computers of the same brand together. And eventually customers said, if your system doesn't support the internet protocols, internet I'm not interested in buying your gear because I want the freedom to choose these different things uh, from different sources, different brands, to do various things. I think that dynamic will probably apply here, even if, if in the early days, reliable operation uh, and consistent operation will be a very high priority, and you may get that by buying devices only from one manufacturer, but at some point, there will be an ensemble of devices that you want because of their functionality, and yet they will come from different places and there will be pressure to create commonality. Or standards. Sorry. So in effect, you said let the marketplace figure it out. You know, I'm sorry, this, this is frustrating for me because I'm hearing impaired, and even though I have a repeating microphone, it's not working. I'm, lip, I'm gonna lip read instead. We always for my next trick, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. And the German accent doesn't help. Um, so you, under the opinion, let the marketplace figure it out, basically, standards. No, 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 I'm not. Uh, he's accusing me of letting the marketplace figure it out. Accusing you of anything. Well, I, I, I believe that the marketplace is a very important place where signals, you know, you get signals from them. But at the same time, I don't think that we can rely purely on the marketplace 
in order to achieve some of the objectives. So I think regulation is going to be there. Incentives have to be created of one kind or another, whether it's because your business will get bigger if you cooperate or because somebody says, if you don't meet these standards, we're not going to let you sell your devices. We need incentives that will lead to where we want to end up, which is a reliable collection of devices that are safe and secure. Okay. I'll go back again. That's a great I mean. answer, though. I love the idea that signals come from the market and then regulation and standards and protocols that are common then are how you implement something that creates higher order value. That's, that's really uh, nice. Any other questions? There's one yes, back there. Yes, He was working on hope, some of I, what you were I'm, talking about. Just based on the previous experience, maybe you can come down. You come here running down here, Keaton. Right, sure. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. This is, this is, this is the, the, the deaf guy didn't want to come to talk and not listen. So. <laughs> so you spoke at length about all the bad things that could happen if you know, your software is buggy or right. it's insecure. Yes. Uh, now, these are problems that, as you pointed out, people haven't managed to solve Scribe. in the last 50 years. So is there something about IoT that's different? No. No, this is a problem. Makes you work it's, I mean, it's, back it's, the same, it's the same problem. Uh, one possibility, of course, is that the IoT devices may not have as much software in them as, you know... Your hope is they system. have less software. <laughs> I know. It's, That's good. You're really every, out of What everybody tells me, though, is that uh, if you look at typical devices today, they've got, you know, tens of millions of lines of code in them. Um, part of the reason for that is that when programmers are writing, modern programmers make reference to libraries full of software, so they don't have to write all the software. They just grab pieces out of the library who the hell knows where that library of software came from? Who's maintaining it? Uh, does it have any you know, security vulnerabilities? I mean, this is kind of, GitHub is wonderful and terrifying at the same time. Uh, so it, it, people who share software, because it sounds like a good idea, open source, isn't that great? Which I, you know, I think so too, but I worry about quality. Uh, so the answer here is that maybe we need to build programming environments that are a lot smarter than the ones that we've used in the past. I mean, I, what I really want, I don't know if we can do it, I want a piece of software that kind of sits on my shoulder while I'm programming. And so I'm writing here and it says, you just created a buffer overflow. What do you mean I created a buffer? <laughs> Look at line number 123. Holy crap, I created a buffer overflow. I mean, I want software that understands structurally uh, what I'm doing. And even if it can't quite do that, I would like a software programming environment where I can make an assertion about the software, which I think is an important you know, property for that software to have, and have the programming environment actually say, I cannot support that particular assertion. I don't, you know, I don't have uh, the ability to uh, support your, uh, your statement. That would be very helpful. Okay, thank you. This okay. is music to my ears. I mean, this is something that I will come. Well, we have to go to Al Aho, who always gets the last question. So, Al will be Al, the last I, question. Oh, we've someone okay, in there. Okay, we have one over here. here. Yes, sir. I'm, I'm sorry, Marcus, about leaving you in the chair back there. I like you back I, here. Uh, this is easy. You're doing very well up there. So okay, carry on. It's on. It's on, yeah. They oh. control the sound over there. In case you go off on a tirade, they'll turn it off. <laughs> So I view TCP IP as a brilliant invention. It's the bearer service that enabled interoperability for the early internet. Now when we're moving into the internet of things, yes. you think the internet of things needs more bearer services, and if so, who should design them? <laughs> 
Are you willing and able? Well, actually, I'm, <laughs> I'm frankly, I'm, I mean, I'm into this space mostly poking the engineers asking questions. I mean, I've found as I've gotten older that one of the best things I can do is press people on their designs, asking questions about it, as opposed to necessarily inventing them all by myself when I was their age. Uh, besides, I've learned a really important lesson. This is probably theorem number 209. Uh, I have young people, which is almost everybody at Google, uh, coming to, relative to my age, coming to me and saying, why don't we do X? You know, I'll think for a bit and I'll think, you know, we tried to do X 25 years ago and it didn't work. And then I have to stop and remember, wait a minute, there's a reason it didn't work 25 years ago. Computers weren't fast enough, didn't have enough memory, too costly. It's 25 years later, maybe we can actually do X. So I've had to rethink uh, a lot of my beliefs as a result of young people saying, why don't we do X? Because they're too young to know you can't do X. <laughs> and so that's theorem number 209. I really do believe that, um, that people who are unafraid of exploring the future are the ones that will invent their way to a solution to this problem. I feel like I'm the guy who's just kind of cheerleading and coaching and poking here and there to say, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And what about this? And sometimes that works. Okay, we got any more or are we done? Ellen's sending me signals. Okay, yes, we, we have to give you a statue. You have to come back up here now. We give you a statue. Oh. Of Claude Shannon. Oh my, oh my. So, wow. This is your Shannon Luminary Award. Congratulations. Oh, that's what a beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. You have to take a picture. You know, Marcus, I, you know, I'm not sure I earned this, but I'll take it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely earned it. So I think Vince's gonna stay for a little bit here. We're kicking him out tonight uh, because of the snow. Yes, but I can stay for a while. But he's staying for a little bit and then we'll take him over and, and do some uh, other stuff over there. So I'll see you over there. Come and say hi to Vince, but thanks once again. Wonderful. Okay, thank thanks. you very thank much. You for more information about the topics discussed today, please check our show notes. If you like this episode of Future Human, please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Also, feel free to leave a review at Apple Podcasts because it helps people find the show. Future Human is a production of Nokia Bell Labs. This episode was written and produced by me, Sandy Smolens, for Audiation.fm. It was recorded and mixed at The Loft in Bronxville, New York, by Matt Noble, who also composed the theme music with me. Additional production by Kelly Kramer. Thank you.